0: Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's October 2022. This week I interviewed Julie Kaye, a leading women's rights and human rights lawyer in the United States and internationally. She's co author of the 2021 book Controlling Women What We Must Do Now to Save Reproductive Freedom. And she was the lead attorney who argued the landmark case ABC v. Ireland for the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights, a ruling that informed and shaped the ultimate legalization of abortion in Ireland. We were also college classmates and have gotten to know each other through our class's alumni activities, but we never actually met back in the day. I hope you enjoy her passion for her work and her insightful comparisons between the United States today and Ireland in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Thank you for coming, Julie, my classmate who I did not know in college. Tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do professionally as an attorney in this general area of reproductive freedom, civil rights.
1: I call myself a human rights attorney and author. I've been working in the area of reproductive rights for a number of years and gender equity, which includes everything from sort of abortion rights to domestic violence, LGBTQ plus rights, all the ways that we define and describe the decisions that you make about when and whether and whom to have a child or not, or have a partnership. I recently co-authored a book called Controlling Women, What We Must Do Now to Save Reproductive Freedom with Catherine Colbert, who's the attorney who argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The book was released in July of 2021 and was looking at the upcoming demise of Roe versus Wade. We really wrote the book because we knew that the court was going to look to eviscerate the right to abortion even more than it already had in the aftermath of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And so the book looks at how we got here, different legal stories of women who we represented in our litigation practice, as well as a real hard look at where we need to go to really bring about more gender equity and race equity, and particularly around some of these vital human rights. The
0: first half of the book became somewhat moot after Dobbs came out, but it's accurate and it accurately forecasted what the Supreme Court was going to do. The second half of the book talks about some ideas for moving forward as a society after a decision like Dobbs, again, with your experiences in Ireland, working with some reproductive freedom issues there in a country that had historically been very hostile to abortion rights, and in particular, some human rights litigation that you took the leading role on involving a European human rights structure. Tell me a little about that and how that case came to be and where it ultimately ended up going in the...
1: Well, I I wouldn't be a natural born lawyer if I didn't start by rebutting what you said about the mootness of part of the first sections of the book that really look at the kinds of restrictions that we have on abortion. Um, I think. In the post-Dobbs era, we've been, I've been certainly surprised at how quickly and how scorched earth red states in particular have moved to completely ban abortion rights starting at the moment of conception or six weeks or even 15 weeks. But a lot of the restrictions that we've seen in this country in the post-Casey era and even before around funding for abortion, waiting periods, uh, clinic regulations, trimester bans, those kinds of things are very much still in effect in parts of the country and are often, I think, dangerously seen as sort of compromises on whether we ban abortion or not. And we're really a lot of the impetus for writing the book because they fall disproportionately on people and women who are on the margins. So they affect women in poverty, they affect younger girls, teens, they affect people in rural areas, and they disproportionately harm women of color and people who have decreased access to healthcare services in this country. So I will Wrap that back into the Irish story because I think what we're seeing is some of these kind of American created restrictions been exported even to countries where abortion has been decriminalized. So, to start with an Irish tale, as they say, I had been working at the Center for Reproductive Rights back in the late 90s doing a lot of the post Casey litigation. I had the opportunity to move to Ireland and I jumped at it. When I arrived in Ireland, abortion was completely illegal. There was a provision in the Irish constitution that equated the life of the so-called unborn with the life of the mother, held them really on par with one another. And it was kind of what I thought of as the through the looking glass approach to abortion in the United States, where we did have established rights. We had some restrictions and limitations, but it was quite surprising to see Ireland, a very modern country. I mean, it really was part of the European human rights model and the reason that this constitutional provision had gone into effect was very much in reaction to Roe versus Wade. Through a referendum in 1983 the Irish people had voted in favor of this constitutional provision and it had started because the Irish Supreme Court had adopted arguments to allow access to contraception that were based in the same kind of right to privacy framework that we had seen in decriminalizing contraception in the United States. There was fear in Ireland that legalized abortion would come to Ireland where it hadn't existed at, at that point. And so they put this referendum to the people. Voters voted for it. And in the decade following, they had a case of a young teen who had become pregnant as a result of rape. She was known as X in this case to protect her privacy. This was the X case. She traveled with her family to England to have an abortion. Somebody called the local police station to say, you know, should we preserve evidence? When she has the termination, the police called the Attorney General and the Attorney General issued an injunction to prohibit her from traveling. At that point, she had already traveled, So the family came back to Ireland, at which point the girl was threatening to take her own life because she was so despondent over all this. And the Irish Supreme Court said that because her life was at risk from the risk of suicide, she was therefore allowed to have an abortion.
0: Let me just orient us on date there. Yes. When when did the X case work its way through the system and how does that match up with when you became involved with the Irish situation?
1: The X case was in 1992, and it really was the first Time that the court had said there is a life-saving exception to this constitutional provision. I showed up in Ireland in 2000, and I think that I sort of described myself as being in the middle section of the Irish court to legalize abortion. Starting in the 80s and through the 90s, it was very much a sort of defensive movement, very much a movement based on defense, based on when things came up like the X case, trying to sort of carve out more. So I arrived in Ireland and I was lucky to get position in the Irish Family Planning Association and started learning a lot more about human rights and at the European Court of Human Rights as a venue.
0: So what was the situation in Ireland as to abortion legality and its availability?
1: The Irish Constitution had this provision equating the life of the so-called mother with the life of the unborn, and the unborn was not defined. So whether it started at the moment of conception or later in pregnancy the reality was that nobody was providing abortions in ireland and at that point nobody was providing illegal abortions or almost nobody was it instead there was what was called the irish solution to the irish problem which meant that women looking for abortion services traveled abroad primarily to england but also to spain the netherlands and and other places and that's on what
0: x being one of those people she went so to x england.
1: right that was sort of the standard operating was that people would travel either by ferry to Liverpool or flying when the discount airlines came in and it was a difficult trip. It was called the Irish Journey. It was done In complete secrecy it was stigmatized it was you know women saying oh I'm just going to London for the weekend or not saying that at all women in rural areas had increased expenses Uh, anybody in a situation of domestic violence obviously had a difficult time with freedom of movement young people people without passports people in state care so it, it was not nothing as they say and I think that's something when we talk about travel and travel for abortion services we've seen that a lot in Ireland it means that when you come back, you often don't have follow-up services unless you're able to go to something like a Planned Parenthood or Irish Family Planning in the Irish sense. People don't tell their family members, they don't tell their medical providers. But nonetheless, it was an option and Ireland didn't have the kind of mortality rates and harm and loss of fertility that we saw in the U.S. pre-Roe versus Wade. Of course,
0: just to jump ahead a little bit to where we find ourselves now, travel is the next wave of this. States... Efforts to restrict travel, to condition travel, to discourage travel are very much alive in the U.S. Right. today.
1: There's American exceptionalism is a big thing in our country in many ways. But I keep saying that America is by no means the first country to criminalize or restrict or ban abortion. And so there's a lot of lessons to be learned from Ireland, from Latin America, from Africa, from places where a lot of activists have been doing work for generations to really try to minimize the harm of these bans. Because one of the things that happens is when you ban or criminalize abortion, it affects obviously people seeking abortions, but also a whole range of reproductive health care. Whether it's miscarriage management, whether it's in vitro fertilization, whether it's amnesotesis to diagnose um, conditions during pregnancy that might be harmful or fatal to the fetus, mental health care services, how we treat women and people who can become pregnant once we ban abortion is of real concern. So in Ireland the solution was to export and it wasn't a great solution. When I arrived there I had been a litigator with the Center for Reproductive Rights and really had sort of grown up there as a lawyer and received training uh, that is I, I think excellent to this day and really looking at how can we bring proactive litigation. It is a very positive, sort of American model of litigation working in the nonprofit world. It's not something that necessarily exists uh, throughout Europe and throughout the world to have, sort of, I'd say, the luxury of these organizations that exist to litigate our rights, whether it's the ACLU or the Center or all sorts of voters' rights organizations, the, the tradition of the NAACP and others in this country of really looking to our courts to expand and enforce our rights. And then what I did see in my research there was the European Court of Human Rights. And the European Court of Human Rights has jurisdiction over 45 countries and, and more. It's the countries that have signed the European Convention on Human Rights, which was a treaty that was created in response to the atrocities of World War II. It was the first treaty that looked to implement some of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that established the United Nations in this country. And the idea is really to bring countries together, um, shared human rights values, and to have an enforcement mechanism. And I think that's very important because human rights are wonderful and beautiful and make nice posters and everything else. But we also really need to have ways of enforcing and holding governments accountable, particularly because the human rights model is something that is based on an affirmative obligations being placed on governments. And if you look at the U.S. constitutional model. It's our right to be free from government intervention, but we don't have a right to health care, generally speaking. We have some rights to emergency health care or some provision of health care services if you're over 65, if you're pregnant and for about 20 minutes after you give birth, depending on the state and those kinds of things. So the human rights model is, I think, aligns with so many of our values, and yet it's one we haven't joined onto.
0: What claims did you make for your clients in the ABC case?
1: I brought a lawsuit on behalf of three women in very different situations to sort of show the court the breadth of people and and women who face uh, restrictions on abortion and what the impact is. I didn't want to bring a case that was going to focus on one person and put one woman up in front of the court to have them decide whether she individually had made the right decision of whether to have an abortion or not. I didn't want to put the extreme situation in front of the court, for example, whether somebody was pregnant as a result of rape or child sexual abuse or whether they were incarcerated and not able to access their rights. So I worked with the Irish Family Planning Association and we had three women who came forward, you know, put their stories in my hands um, and put their life experience there anonymously. It was very important for all of them to be anonymous because of the shaming and stigma around abortion and particularly when it's criminalized. But they all three felt very strongly that what had happened to them in being forced to travel abroad was wrong and they didn't want it to happen to other women. I'm
0: curious about two things. Uh, where is the, this European court that we're talking about and how do they handle the languages? There are 45 countries. That's Is it like the UN where they have interpreters there? I just It's a practical yeah. question. They're just, you're describing argument. I thought, how were they arguing? What did they... What was their common way of communicating?
1: The court is in Strasbourg, which is lovely. It's a very sort of German-influenced part of France, and it's this very glass-shiny building that's supposed to reflect the transparency of human rights. And their primary languages are English and French, and so the judges who don't, speak either language well enough to work in it, have headsets on. I will say one of the most delightful moments of my life as a struggling French speaker was when I saw the video of myself doing an oral argument and they had translated it and dubbed it into French. It was flowing, and my sister, who was bilingual <laughs> in French, I sent it to her, I was like, look, it's me. <laughs> so they do operate in most international bodies with a lot of simultaneous you know, translation and that kind of thing, and have a vast variety of viewpoints, so they very quickly... Brought my case before the Grand Chamber, which is the highest chamber. It's kind of like going to the, you know, full-on bank uh, initially. And I, that which really is an signals- awesome
0: name for a court, by the way. The Grand, the Grand chamber, chamber, that's the best name in the world. It has to be.
1: There's 17 judges and they all sort of line up in a big circle and it's different from the U.S. Supreme Court because they don't interrupt you, which is kind of nice, but they also then all dump dump questions on you at the end and you have sort of 10 minutes to sit there and think through or panic or drink water or whatever and then to respond and there are judges from each different country in the grand, I mean, there are 46 countries, but there's a selection of 17. And I was about eight and a half months pregnant when I argued the case.
0: Of course the irony is not lost about to give birth having this particular argument
1: the pregnancy was planned the date of the hearing was not and i think like many women it's just things come up you're pregnant you just plow ahead do your job you do what needs to get done i was lucky that didn't involve heavy lifting and then i had a healthy pregnancy but i was not able to plug in my own laptop unassisted <laughs> and things getting down low on the floor was the hardest part of that and it was interesting because nobody mentioned it to me nobody said anything and when you're that pregnant you can't walk down the street without strangers saying oh is it twins or other kinds of questions and comments, you know, it is an interesting kind of stereotype that people who are pregnant don't support abortion rights. And in fact, the opposite is true, that support for abortion rights goes up among pregnant women because you know the difficulty that it is. And you know what it takes to have a child and parent well. In the U.S., 50% of people who have abortions are parents already, are mothers already. And it's, it's almost like it's more of a recognition of what's at stake. And so when I hear the Supreme Court and other places kind of minimizing the effect of pregnancy itself, the effect of parenting and what it takes and what it takes to do it well, especially in a country like ours that doesn't provide the kinds of supports that they should, that's where I think a human rights model really fits more. Like if we're going to encourage people to become parents, we need to support them. We need child care. We need paid leave in this country, which, you know, we're one of the few industrialized countries that doesn't have any paid leave. We need life duty for accommodations for women in the workforce who are in particularly non-traditional jobs where there's lifting involved, um, but even in more traditional jobs like traditionally female-dominated jobs like hotel workers or restaurants, those kinds of things. We really need to have these kinds of mechanisms in place so that people don't have to decide whether they're able to keep their job or continue pregnancy.
0: ABC argument with the Grand Chamber, what did that court ultimately do and then what happened? They
1: ultimately ruled in favor of one of my clients who had had cancer and she was not able to get any information from her health care providers as to whether continuation of pregnancy would put her own life in jeopardy or not. And the other two clients, one had five children who were in state care that she was working to get custody back after having substance abuse issues herself. They said that there were definitely some issues there. We got some very strong concurring opinions acknowledging her poverty and how that played into it. And then the other client who had had pregnancy that was unplanned that she took the morning after pill, emergency contraception, and it didn't work, which can also increase your risk of an ectopic pregnancy. And she traveled and they were sympathetic, but said it didn't rise to the level of a human rights violation, the majority opinion. We were kind of a few justices shy on some of these concurring opinions that would have found for both those clients. So there was a real recognition, but they weren't going to go there. But where they did go is telling the Irish government that they had to come up with a mechanism for making life-saving abortion accessible. And this is something that I never thought would be relevant to the U.S. and in the past couple of weeks we've seen, and particularly in Texas, the denial of or the speaking about denying life-saving abortions for women who come into emergency rooms or just even in, in regular physician settings. And
0: what did the Irish government do in response to the chamber's ruling in ABC?
1: And so the Irish government did what it does best in the abortion issue. It dragged its feet, and it hid under the table, and it set up a bunch of commissions. And while this was going on, there was the tragic case of a woman named Sabita Halapanovar. She was, uh, I believe, 17 weeks pregnant and went into the hospital with some complications. They refused to do the proper medical treatment, which would have been to allow her to abort the pregnancy at that point. They waited and waited because they could still hear a fetal heartbeat. And by the time they went to treat her, because they couldn't hear the heartbeat anymore. It was too late and she had sepsis and she tragically died. Her husband and father were very outspoken about this. I don't think by any means this was the first time of maternal mortality in Ireland, but it was the first time that anybody was very public.
0: About when was this and how far after your European case?
1: Uh, This was in 2012, so it was about a year after the European court case, it was while the government was still kind of bopping around the idea of how are we going to propose legislation, what's it going to look like, trying to create more and more hurdles. So you would have had to have a certain number of doctors, you would have had to have these kinds of conditions.
0: This case, though, really galvanized the public. It seems horrible situation for the people involved. but. It resonated in some way with the public, it seems like, and got the government. It really
1: resonated. I mean, you know, in videos where she's dancing with her husband, you know, she was called the girl with the diamond smile because she had a diamond in her tooth. She was literally full of life in so many ways. And I think. It just was a tipping point for people. We had, when we did the Irish case, we had really been framing the issue as a human rights issue. Lawsuit was sort of the centerpiece of a lot of public education campaigning, movement building, working in the political sphere with some newly elected uh, politicians who were younger, who were more aware of gender rights, who were women, um, and really spoke about this differently. And so I think there were all these kinds of build-up, and then just this tragedy brought people out in the streets. You know, we knew what our political demands were already, and so that was something that was able to be built upon pretty quickly and led to um, a government commission that developed the referendum. And there was a lot of support for abortion rights and a lot of quiet support. And I think what also really resonates in the U.S. experience is kind of what we've seen in Kansas with that referendum um, was intended to criminalize abortion further, to ban abortion and to undo what the Kansas courts had done, but instead gave people and gave women especially a chance to express their support for abortion rights. What we see a lot what happens is when people talk person to person at kitchen tables and our office water coolers and other places, and really talk about what abortion means to me, uh, how it affects my life, whether it's a you know woman or woman of childbearing years, or somebody who has friends and family um, who you know could be in the situation of needing access to abortion, and people who don't want to live in a world and in a country where women are defined as childbearers and childrearers. and. The reason we named the book Controlling Women is because this issue is all about control. It's not a religious issue. It's not some deep philosophical question of when does life begin. It's about controlling sexuality. It's about controlling relationships and childbearing and all those kinds of deeply personal decisions that are at their core human rights issues. That
0: concept of control and how it folds into the broader idea of inherent human rights, something that we, all of us, simply by virtue of being human, have, is a, or those are powerful ideas. There are certainly echoes of them in our country's founding documents. The idea of internationalizing them, as happened with Ireland and Europe, is not something the United States is going to do or that red states are going to do. We can call it exceptionalism or nationalism or we're on the other side of the oceanism, whatever. We just like to do it our own way how can we take some of these ideas about human rights and governmental control and interference with them and fold them into our national experience that's resistant to these globalized ideas.
1: Yeah, I, I love how you, you frame that. I think Americans often think of human rights as black helicopters and blue helmets and not for us um, in the worst case scenario. And I think in the best case scenario, I often hear people talk about them as international human rights. So I think the first thing is just call them human rights because they're human in wherever we are in the world, but I agree that the Coast World War II implementation of them has happened much more in Western Europe. And you've seen the result of that, I think, in how quickly Europe has rallied around the Ukrainians and having more open borders and those kinds of things, and even the reaction of Brexit of trying to tease up a bit. But I think the, the model exists in the US in the reproductive justice movement, which is the wing of the reproductive rights movement that was started in the South by women of color in the late 80s and early 90s, and really looked at abortion the way that we should be looking at it, in, in my view, which is that It's part of a bigger picture of the right to decide whether, when, and with whom to have children or not. And so it's about access to food security. It's about access to education, to health care, to being free from environmental contaminants, sort of all those things that it takes to have and raise a child and have a family. In this country, we have a horrific maternal mortality rate, and it's something that I think we're only just beginning to recognize outside of sort of the reproductive justice community and places where they've really talked about that the rate of maternal mortality is not only bad, but for women of color, and particularly for black women and indigenous people, it is about three to four times worse than for white women, depending on the data and the location. And so we need to look at abortion as part of basic health care, as part of maternal health care and decision-making. How do we keep somebody safe and healthy, whether or not they want to become pregnant, whether or not they do become pregnant, and whatever the outcome is of that pregnancy. We have some of the best healthcare in the world, Texas has some of the best healthcare in the world, and some of the worst maternal mortality rates, and some of the worst access to abortion of anywhere, and we're really playing Russian roulette with women's health and lives when we're denying access to abortion and and reproductive healthcare and maternal Healthcare, and we're really sending a message about what is women's role when you're not allowed to make a basic decision about whether or not to continue a pregnancy, your bodily autonomy is at risk, your liberty, all these kinds of touchstones that have been in. Roe versus Wade, and in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, but under the rubric of privacy. And I think we need to start talking amongst ourselves, both as lawyers and human beings, because we are both, um, as not just... Strange, but true, yes. (laughs) There are are some exceptions. Um, And really, when we look at what the Supreme Court did in Dobbs, that's part of the problem. The fact that they said, well, this is not in the Constitution. Therefore, we're going to overturn 50 years of precedent, 50 years of decision that women have relied on, that people have relied on in making these basic daily decisions in their lives and that they kind of pulled the carpet out from under our feet on that is really dangerous because of the effect it's had in the abortion realm and because of the effect it has it opens the door to criminalizing contraception as we're already seeing that kind of backpedaling on the right to contraception, to marriage equality, and to such a host of other rights that are so closely related and that's why I think we need to start really talking about what's at stake here. If we wanna wrap it up under privacy, but if we wanna really acknowledge that it's about liberty and autonomy and sex discrimination. And so to answer your question in a more lawyerly way, I think one of the things that we need, and that I talk about a lot in the book, is we need to fix our constitution. There's a lot of pluses considering what they all did and how long it's been around. It has served us well as a constitution, but it was meant to be a living, breathing document. It was meant to not let Justice Alito and his crew do exactly what they did in Dobbs as far as saying, well, we didn't have legalized abortion back then. The reality is when the Constitution was made, women were certainly not in the forefront. They weren't at the front of the line. People of color were not at the front of the line by any means. In fact, you know, there you can still see so many of the debates and the remnants of how they were trying to deal with the issues of enslavement and other things. but. It's time to renovate our Constitution. It's time for us to become the new drafters of the Constitution and to look to put a gender equity amendment into the Constitution. It's not going to happen quickly.
0: Anyone who hears that hears ERA and starts having flashbacks to discussions of 10, 20, 50 years ago about that. How is what we're talking about different? How does it build upon those experiences? What does it offer that is not just a rehash of what we've been going through for decades with the ERA
1: well this is not your grandmother's Buick as they say and I think there's two reasons one procedurally I don't believe that the ERA is going to make it through the congressional process it's certainly not going to get the nod from the US Supreme Court that it would need I think it's great that people get it when you say what the ERA is uh, through both their own experience and popular television gender equity amendment is different it's a little more of a mouthful but it's really Really looking at we don't exist on kind of this gender binary that we had back in the day when to, the you wrap your baby in a blue or pink blanket we've really recognized LGBTQ community. We're now in a place where marriage equality is part of daily life. And so we need language that really looks at sex in a different way and gender in a different way. And in the book, we don't have, here are the three sentences. I think this has to be part of a longer conversation among different activists, among different groups. We don't have one feminist movement anymore. And we have to really wrestle with what the language would look like. How do we recognize the intersectionality of race and gender equity, because you can't talk about gender equity without talking about race as well. It's just not one uniform experience.
0: One of my big takeaways from the book, and and just talking to you just now, is part of me, the practical litigator side of me, wants to say, okay, what's the action items? What are the checklist things we need to go do? And there's room to to have that discussion. But the, the bigger idea that I think your book offers is an issue of a paradigm, that you should think about the issue of abortion, specific abortion, restrictions, regulations, as part of a broader fabric of intersecting interests, overlapping rights and guarantees of certain liberties by the government, and simply adopting that view affects what you say and affects what you put on the checklist. Coming to it with broader perspective that you might have brought 30, 40 years ago is in of itself valuable. The end product will be different and better just because it's a different and more thoughtful process that goes into it.
1: No, I I mean, exactly. And I'm I'm not going to say what it is. I mean, I can't say what it is. I can't say, you know, me, white girl lawyer sitting in Brooklyn, here's what the language should be. There has to be more of a movement conversation. There has to be more heads coming together, both lawyers and activists, and particularly those who've been at the forefront of LGBTQ plus rights, of black, Lives Matter, you know, other groups that have been in this space and it's totally possible. There are countries that have a gender equity provision in their constitution. Um, some of them are taken right from the convention for the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. That CEDAW convention is one that the United States has not signed. I think we're one of four countries in the world.
0: What now? What should our next steps be as voters and policymakers on these issues?
1: Where do we go from here? I think is the really important question. The Gender Equity Amendment is a long-term solution. I would say the immediate daily solution is Around helping women and people who need to travel for abortions or to who can't travel and to access abortions we don't have the luxury of really defining this is what we're gonna this is who we're gonna help with of everybody traveling I don't call it illegal abortion or self-induced I call it rogue abortion I think there's a lot of legal chaos right now there's a lot of overstepping and chest-thumping by some of the anti-abortion politicians who are saying exactly what you were talking about before David of this you can't You're aiding and abetting. You're, You're an accessory. Untested legal theories and a lot of what's been happening in Texas around SB 8 has emboldened people. The Dobbs decision has emboldened people. And I think we're seeing an utter disregard for law in a way that we haven't seen before. So we do need to be bold and brave about helping women access abortion medication, helping them travel when they can, helping women with complicated pregnancies get the care they need, not self-censoring in what we say and what we do. We need to elect politicians who are gonna support that view. Go back to Ken Paxton in Texas, has been at the forefront of stretching and pushing to see how we can bend the law to really ban access to human rights, to necessary health care. The case that he brought against the Biden administration seeking to, I guess, get a pass on providing life-saving treatment for women and people who show up in emergency rooms with life-threatening complications is atrocious. We've seen... Women, I talked about Savita Halopanovar, there have been two women in Poland who died last year from not being given life-saving treatment for abortion rights. Let's not wait for somebody to make their case public here. We already know what's going on with our maternal mortality. We need people who are going to see the issues and and look to preserve women's health, look to have clarity in the law. I have been a big supporter of Rochelle Garza's campaign to unseat Ken Paxton, not just because she's never been indicted, but also because she's been a real hero on this issue of starting with her work on the Jane case during the Trump administration of a young girl who was kept in immigration detention after she had announced that she needed access to an abortion. There are ways forward and we can even in this post-Roe era and as we rebuild and as we move towards a more of a human rights model and more of a humane model, there are steps we can certainly take to align with the politicians who are going to get that
0: Julie, thank you so much for coming on. You're an impassioned advocate for these causes that you clearly believe so deeply in, that you've thought so much about and given so much of yourself for over the years. There's a lot to chew on here, both detailed and high level. I really appreciate you taking the time to learn about our situation here in Texas and talk that through with me in the broader national and even international context. And I wish you good luck on all fronts and hope to keep up with you.
1: Thank you, David. Great to be in conversation with you.
0: In this episode of Coal Mind, I interviewed Julie Kay, a leading human rights lawyer and author of an important new book, Controlling Women. The book reviews public policy decisions that we have to make after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision with an eye towards recent analogous experiences with abortion regulation and ultimate legalization in Ireland. I have several upcoming episodes planned with other similar interviews and analyses of federal and state law issues in the post-Roe legal environment. You can keep up with them by subscribing to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.